I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the New Testament, to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter number 3. And I do want to, first of all, thank members of this church for your faithfulness for so many years, not just on being a local church, but supporting the vision of the seminary that has served so many of us. And I also want to thank you for just taking such good care of your pastor. He's not just a dear friend to me, he's a dear friend to many. And he wouldn't have that bandwidth and capacity and if he just didn't have such the encouragement and support from you. I do have to confess, though, that our friendship has, has really been one-sided. I've been on the receiving end so much. I mean, th- this morning, the guy quotes from the Septuagint in the, in, in the middle of his, of his talk, and I thought, I can't remember when I even thought about the Septuagint. And the, the only thing I can think of is that here's a guy that actually does eat fewer vegetables than me. And... <laughs> For me, it's a matter of taste. For him, I think he actually has a theology about it. But he was using an illustration this morning that I thought, ah, you know, there may be one thing in life, maybe one thing that that I have maybe up on him. And he was talking about how he doesn't have a body that's built for running. And, And we would all agree to that. And... But it reminded me of something that, that happened. He was talking about, you know, getting partway through a marathon and just feeling like, you know, the, the, the gas is out of the tank and somebody comes along and encourages you and gets you going. Well, I made a, a commitment, one of the most absurd and ridiculous commitments I've ever made in my life to try to, um, qualify and run for the Boston Marathon. And I spent more than a decade working on that, finally achieved that. And so, my, it was, you know, it was like this running dream to get to Boston and run in the Boston Marathon. And it's the year 2015, a couple of years after the bombing, which, you know, just gave me even more motivation. And if you know anything about that marathon, it's a point-to-point marathon. You don't, you don't begin and end at the same place. You, you begin 26 miles away from Boston and you got to run all the way into Boston. But it's a, it's a phenomenal marathon because there are people on both sides of the street for 26 miles. And it's a holiday for Massachusetts for, for that. It's Patriots Day that's there. It's a really, really big deal. It just so happened on that day that there was a 25-mile-an-hour headwind for 26 miles. And it was raining, and it was like 39 degrees. It was about the worst running conditions that I have ever been in. And I, I, I got to mile 22, and I don't know, I can't remember exactly what happened. If my shoe came untied, or if something was just kind of locking up, and I just, I had to get over to the side of the, of the, of the street to just try to compose myself to finish the thing. And I got over there, and there was some guy that, could tell by my my bib that I was from Detroit, and he goes, "Hey, Detroit, you're not quitting. He, had, you didn't come all the way here to stop now. Not on my watch. You get back in there, <laughs> buddy, buddy. I, I really, I'm just dying my shoe, man. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. And I thought, 
if, if that's the part maybe that I can play in your life tonight, if, if I can be that guy who just says, you're not quitting, not on my watch, but not because I'm trying to get you to find some kind of inner strength or inner resolve or just kind of get it up and get through it again. No, I want you to see in God's Word the sufficiency and the power that is there to help you finish the race and run it well. In his classic work on Christian ministry, Charles Bridges said, ministerial success must be viewed as extending beyond present appearances. The seed may lie under the clods till we lie there and then spring up. Our plane and cheering duty is therefore to go forward to scatter the seed to believe and wait. My charge is to address the topic of forming a congregational culture around the sufficiency of the Word. So my aim is to convince, if needed, correct, if needed, and encourage you, which is usually needed, to unleash the sword of the Spirit because the unleashed sword of the Spirit will not only do the work of God better than anything else, but nothing else will do the work of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at I. Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 
Lord Jesus, we confess that we are unworthy servants. We confess that we are not adequate for the task that you have given to us. We are so thankful that you are. Your word is sufficient. Your spirit takes your word and does the work. I pray that we will have a renewed trust in and passion for you, your word. In your sweet name we pray, amen. William Willeman was a bishop in the United Methodist Church and amongst other things, former dean or cha- uh, former dean of the chapel at Duke University. It's been many years ago now, and he said this, I'm a mainline, liberal, Protestant, Methodist type Christian. I know we're soft on Scripture. Norman Vincent Peale has exercised a more powerful effect on our preaching than St. Paul. Listen to us on Sunday, and Leo Biscaglia or Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood may come to mind before you think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I know we play fast and loose with Scripture, but I've always had this fantasy that somewhere, like in Texas, there were preachers who preached it all. Genesis to Revelation without blinking an eye. And then he said, do you know how disillusioning it has been for me to realize that many of these self-proclaimed biblical preachers now sound more like liberal mainliners than liberal mainliners? You cannot and will not preach at all Genesis to Revelation without blinking a lie unless you believe it all. If God's Word is what God says it is, and therefore it is all that God says it is, then the Gospel ministry is the ministry of the Word. If faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, if the Word of God is able to make you wise for salvation, if we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring Word of God, if we are sanctified in the truth and the Word of God is truth, then that means that we are saved by God's Word and sanctified by God's Word. Life comes from the words of God. He spoke and the universe appeared. He breathed into the nostrils of Adam, the breath of life. And then and only then, man became a living creature. So there's no issue with the power and the efficacy of God's Word. As a pastor, leader in your church, do you believe it? Do you believe that God's Word is what God says it is? Do you believe that God's Word can do what God says? This is what we have to confront. So this address this evening, it has five points to it. The first one is a personal challenge. And then points two and three are designed to encouragingly instruct, while points four and five are designed to encouragingly remind. 
for you to pursue the goal of forming a culture of your congregation around the sufficiency of God's Word means that you have to look at this book and look at your heart and ask yourself a very important question. Do I believe this? So point number one is that the sufficiency of the Word has to be the pastor's personal conviction. And I draw your attention to verse 17 of chapter 3, where Paul gives the purpose clause. All scriptures breathed out by God that the man of God may be competent. This is what the word of God does. It makes the man of God competent. It equips him for every good work. But if you're not convinced of the sufficiency of God's word to accomplish God's work, then you will not unleash this sword. There's a member of my church who makes swords. Seriously. I mean, these are like Lord of the Ring swords. He makes a living. He makes a good living selling these swords. I mean, it's, people pay ridiculous money for them. I, did, I didn't realize, man, it's such a thing. This summer I was doing a wedding and the groom bought swords for all of the guys standing up in the wedding, which, well, let me put it this way. None, none of these guys that were in his wedding were in college on athletic scholarships, all right? And, and they're running around at the rehearsal dinner with these swords. And I was really nervous because I'm just waiting for one of them to either get impaled or lose a body part. And I was thinking, man, put that thing away. Someone is going to get hurt. But we're tempted to keep God's word in its sheath. If we're not convinced in our core that it really can accomplish and will accomplish what God says it will. It's one thing to say that we believe in the sufficiency of God's Word. It's another to really believe it, not just as a doctrine, not just as a, a the theological category. If the sufficiency of the Word of God is our core conviction, it will manifest itself in several ways, one of which is we will surrender ourselves to the text. Studying the text is not just reading the text. It's letting the text read you. And here's what I mean. We read all Scripture is breathed out by God. And we find our theological position of inspiration and inerrancy buttressed and fortified and, and good. We should stand ready to defend this against those who want to water it down or dismiss it, some of the historical and moral claims of, of God's Word. Which more than that, God breathed into Adam and he became a living creature. The Word of God is the life-creating, life-forming, life-giving, life-sustaining, exhaling of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus said that to Satan. Jesus quoted 
Deuteronomy 8, and then said that to Satan. Man does not really live unless he is made alive by God's word. That's how God views his word. And I have to ask myself, is that how I view God's word? Do you read God's word with a sense of urgency, recognizing that if you don't have this, if God's word does not sustain you, you will die. This is the air in my lungs and the blood in my veins. Apart from this, I don't live. God's word is your underwater oxygen tank. You don't have this, you die. If I'm convinced of the sufficiency of God's word, I will read God's word, not just in preparation for a sermon or a lesson or a funeral or a devotional. I will, I will inhale it with a sense of desperate dependence, realizing that apart from it, I have no life. And if that is the case, then, beloved, we will order our lives by the text. There's a number of high-profile pastor personalities who publicly defended and taught God's Word with much acclaim, much skill, but who failed to order their lives by it. Are we any different? Is my final authority really God's Word? Is my personal life actually ordered by the text? Do I take God's Word to heart so much that it really governs what I look at in private or how I act when I don't think anybody else is looking. Before you were a pastor, you were a Christian, hopefully, right? And Jesus said about believers, we don't live by bread alone. We, we have to have the word. That's true, not just for my people, that's true for me. And if that's true for you, before you became a pastor, it is still true. My friend said, every pastor is a sheep before he is a shepherd. And therefore, before the Bible is your source for your sermons, it has to be the source for your life. And if I'm tempted to use God's word to make myself appear to be that kind of a person, I'm in danger. I have to ask myself, am I really that? If the sufficiency of God's word is a core conviction, then it will order our churches by it. There's nothing supernatural about having a successful congregation built on structures and programs. There's nothing supernatural about having a successful congregation built on a big personality leader. And there's nothing supernatural about attracting and moving a crowd with, with really good music and visual effects. But if you're not convinced of the sufficiency of God's word to do God's work, you'll be tempted to put your confidence in a number of other things. Because, well, honestly, they appeal to us. There's a certain rationality to human methods that do not require a living-by-faith component. And that is the appeal of methods that set aside the plain instruction of God's Word. 
frankly, they make sense. We can see how, oh, if you do this, you will get this result. And we'd like to have that result. We see the cause and effect on that. You can't see the cause and effect on God's Word. Church is now evaluated on the basis of many standards, such as entertainment value, visitor appeal, worship experience, relevance factor, public approval, social media response, or, or economic return. And what is woefully absent from much of the contemporary evaluation of church effectiveness is whether or not the church practices and values a high view of the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God. But all of these things that churches have attempted to do as replacements of the Scripture and the faithful exposition of it are nothing less than cotton candy. They may taste good in the moment, and they may even give the consumer a buzz for a little bit, but there's no substance. There's no grit. There's no meat. There's no sustenance. There's no nourishment of the soul apart from the word immersed, word expositing, Jesus declaring, preaching. Christianity is based on revelation. And if we're going to know anything with certainty, it is only going to be by divine revelation. And therefore, in order to know what to affirm, what to reject, we have to have an objective basis that comes from outside of us, and that objective basis is the Bible. The Bible alone is our ultimate authority for what we believe and how we live. Brothers, unleash it. Unleash the sword. Let that lion roar. Unleash it by faithfully preaching it. When you think about what we're called to do, it sounds crazy. Many times when I'm seated on the front row and the final song is taking place and I'm anticipating walking up to the steps and getting into the pulpit, I realize I'm about to read from a book to a room full of people, some of whom are junior high boys. And even if you are a junior high boy here, you'd probably confess that, yeah, junior high boys are basically pre-human, right? And I'm, how, how am I, what I'm about to do going to make any connection with them? I'm not playing a video. I'm not showing a movie. I'm, I'm reading from a book. There's nothing Instagram about this book because there's nothing Insta about it. First of all, it's between 2,000 and 3,500 years old. That ain't Insta. And secondly, there's no gram. There's no pictures in this. And, and it doesn't come with a soundtrack. How on earth is this book going to do anything. And here are people whose iPads and cell phones keep them perpetually distracted with dings and buzzes, each of which is promising power and influence and information. How on earth is this going to keep their attention for any more than 30 seconds? And in that moment, 
as I'm coming up to the pulpit, I have a choice. Do I believe God's word or not? Because if I don't, then I will preach stories, psychology, management techniques, political posturing, self-help talks, anything that I think will attract and keep an audience instead of trusting in God. That was Willimon's point. Is there anybody who will preach it all without blinking an eye? No distractions, no substitution, no apologies, no change. And beloved, if you are foolish enough, and I mean 1 Corinthians 1.25 kind of foolish enough, in the, foolish in the eyes of this world to believe this book, then you will realize that this oxygen tank is not only your only hope, it is the only hope for your junior high boys. It is the only hope for your hearers because if they don't get the word, they will die. But when the word is viewed and embraced as it is life-creating, life-forming, life-giving, life-sustaining, then here is what you can expect to happen. And I say this, first of all, on the basis of God's Word. That's the ultimate basis. And would say, my experience bears witness to it. Point number two, the Word will confront and correct a congregation's history and habits. In verse 16, Paul talks about how the Word of God is useful for reproof. 32 years ago, I became the pastor of the congregation where I serve. It, it was a kind, and still is, kind congregation, which was a kindness of God to me because there was even way more then that I did not know. But by God's grace, I had this conviction back then. I had this conviction and the sufficiency of God's Word to do God's work in God's people. And I told the congregation as they were considering whether or not to call me that they needed to know this, that I will follow God's Word no matter what. It's, it's really all I have. And in the moment, that, that seemed good to them. So most of them voted me in. There were a few who didn't. We can have that conversation later. But anyway, most of them did. But they had not been taught all that well, and they hadn't been led well for a number of years. So when God's Word does not set the agenda for the church, well, man's Word will. What is man's Word? It's always pragmatism. Do whatever appears to work. Do whatever you need to do to make people happy or keep people happy and keep them coming. And you, you know the stories. You, you're there. Some of you are there right now. Long-term members of the church have a daughter who professed faith in Christ and she wants to get married to a non-believer and, well, hey, you know, you're the new pastor. You're expected to do this. High-profile leader in the church plans to divorce his wife without grounds. And while he doesn't expect you to like it, he expects you to understand and basically ignore it. A historical personality holds and practices an unbiblical, but back then, culturally acceptable position on race. 
kind of expects tacit agreement from you. So what is the church tempted to believe? What are the leaders tempted to believe? What's the board tempted to believe? Well, pragmatism. They're tempted to believe the wisdom of the world, which says that you need to give the customer what the customer wants. After all, the customer's always right. Give them the kind of church that makes them feel good. Be the kind of pastor they expect you to be in the moment. Because if you don't give people what they want, they will leave. And if they leave, you will lose money. And if you lose money, well, you may lose your ministry. And, and could that happen? Yes. If I ever wrote a memoir, I think it would be long nights and short years. Because there were many nights I did not sleep. Because I thought, we're going to lose the whole thing. It's going to all go south. But in those nights when I was tempted to go along in order to get along, it kept coming back to this one simple thing. Do I believe this? Do, do I believe this? Do I believe this Genesis to Revelation without blinking an eye? And I don't, I don't know about Texas. But by God's grace, I wanted to make sure there was at least one guy in Michigan who did. And so here's what happened when we would face the situation and they just seemed to come in waves. That I would ask the leaders the same question I would have to ask myself in the middle of the night. Do you believe this? Because your answer to what we ought to do with this situation depends on what kind of a church you want. So that became a consistent theme. What kind of a church do you want? Do you, do you want a church that believes it all? Or do you want to, to pick the parts that you believe and what parts that you don't? Do you want to try to explain to your kids why we follow part of God's Word, but not this part? And then I would say, I really don't want to do that. Do you? And sometimes it took a little while, but eventually they would say, no, we want to believe it all. And that meant that a number of things in our history had to be confronted. A number of things had to be corrected. Things that had been unaddressed and ignored had to be dealt with and changed. And they were not easy, but little by little, step by step, this core conviction took hold in the congregation. God's Word is our life. And we order our church by it, not by our history, not by our habits, not by the culture. And the result is, point number three, it gives categories. God's Word gives categories for thinking and behavior. You see that out of verse 16. Teaching. That, that, tells, that tells you this is what you're supposed to believe. Reproof. All right? This is how you don't behave. Correction. All right? This is what you don't believe. Training in righteousness. This is how you should behave. Leo was a long-time member of the church. 
He was a fighter pilot in World War II. His last name was spelled K-R-A-P-P. And it was pronounced that way. He had three sons, all of whom changed their name. Dinner this evening, we were discussing pulpit blunders. And I thought of Leo. He was dearly loved in our church. He's with Jesus now. He and his wife, after 70 years of marriage, died in the same hospital room just within just hours of each other. It was just pretty amazing. But Leo was such a, a dear brother, and he had a stroke one time, and I was updating the congregation one Sunday morning, and without thinking, I said, hey, this week I, I went by the hospital to see Leo crap. And it just blew up, and I never recovered that morning. The reason I tell you that is not because of that, but because of this, all right? His wife, Muriel, was concerned, and she wanted to come see me. There was something wrong going on in the church that, that troubled her. And keep in mind, Muriel is a very sweet, she's a faithful, godly sister. Um, the thing that was troubling her is that there were men who were serving the Lord's table who um, were not wearing a tie. And um, she, was, she was bothered by that. So her and Leo came to see me. And so as I listened to her, I, I, I then said, I said, my task is to preach, defend, and practice God's Word. And I said, if you can find for me where God says that men in the church have to wear a tie in order to serve uh, the Lord's table, I said, Muriel, I said, I'll be on that like ugly on ape. And she paused for a second and then thoughtfully said, she goes, it doesn't say that. I nodded my head. And then she said with a, with a little more certainty, so I guess it doesn't matter. And then I nodded my head. And then she looked at Brother Leo and she said rather confidently, well, okay then. And, and that kind of transformation happened over and over and over. The Word of God gave these categories that became so helpful. Since the Scriptures are sufficient and they provide categories so that the man of God is competent and equipped to be and do what God has called him to be and do, we can confidently say that if it is in the Word of God, we need to address it. And if it isn't, we don't need to address it. So what, what is your church's position on vaccines? Okay. I, I, that's going on in my church right now. So I recently told them, Satan does not care if people go to hell vaccinated or unvaccinated. He only cares if they go to hell. Point being, God's Word gives us categories for how we are to live our lives. And if it doesn't fit in the category, it doesn't matter. I don't need to address it. We don't need to waste time on it. 
We have to have these categories and they are useful to help us stay in our lanes. So the Word of God establishes the patterns for how we solve problems, how we disciple, how we counsel one another. Deepak's talk this afternoon was so good on that. Thank you, brother. The Word of God is the foundation for how we help one another. The Word of God is the focal point then for our conversations, then within the, the, the church. And again, I think what Deepak did this afternoon is just give us some really good practical things on how to have those kinds of Word-centered conversations so that our relationships help one another look more like Jesus. The Word of God is actually central to our gathering together. How should we look at our gathering together as a local church for our Sunday worship time together? Well, it simply is this, brothers and sisters. Read the Word, sing the Word, pray the Word, preach the Word, hear the Word, respond to the Word, and reenact the Word in the Lord's table and baptism. It's the Word. It centers around the Word. And when it centers around the Word, it's going to center around Jesus. These last two points, I trust, will just be encouraging. The Word of God gives confidence in adversity and fuel for faithfulness. That is clear from verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And it was so. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. And it was so. And God said, and God said, and God said, and it was so, and it was so, and it was so, and it was good. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Your Word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. The Lord said to Moses, then the Lord said to Joshua, the Lord said to Gideon, the Lord revealed Himself to Samuel through His Word. The Word of the Lord came to Elijah. Elisha said, hear the Word of the Lord. This is the Word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. And we have the Word of the Prophets and you will do well to pay attention to it. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The unfolding of your words gives light. Your Word is a light into my path. Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the Word of Christ. Everyone who hears these 
words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. You have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. Sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, I give you this charge. Preach the word, for all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Persecution won't last. God's Word does. False teachers won't last. God's Word does. This world won't last. God's Word does. Tough times won't last. God's Word does. Sorrow won't last. God's Word does. Sickness won't last. God's Word does. Disappointment won't last. God's Word does. Philosophies won't last. Psychology won't last. Trends won't last. Technology won't last. Countries, economies, universities won't last. God's Word does. Forever your Word is settled in heaven. Point five. It gives life. Have you ever heard of cork? Soup, you'll not find it as soup du jour. Scientists were able to get gold ions to smash into each other, traveling at nearly the speed of light. If that sounds like fun (laughs) and a bit dangerous, it is. And what happened was the formation of this stuff that they call quark gluon plasma or cork soup. The stuff is 4 trillion degrees Celsius. That's 250,000 times hotter than the sun. Now, in normal matter, corks are confined, but in cork gluon plasma, they're, they're unconfined. I mean, this stuff is really, really powerful beyond what we can hardly imagine. Obviously, very, very dangerous stuff. Have you ever heard of chlorine trifluoride? This stuff is supposed to be some of the most flammable material on the earth. There's a story that a ton of it was spilled once and that it caught fire and burned through 12 inches of concrete, then through another three feet of sand and gravel before it finally burned out. These substances are so powerful because of how destructive they are. They destroy life. 
God's word is infinitely more powerful because it is able to form life. All scripture is breathed out by God. God is life. Therefore, God's word is life. God's word is exhaled by God. God's word is living. It is the life-giving, truth-revealing, reality-forming, standard-establishing, joy-infusing, law-making, judgment-warning, grace-amazing, Christ-exalting, spirit-breathing, universe-explaining, heart-exposing, motive-uncovering, history-making, mountain-moving, kingdom-establishing, church-birthing, believer-making, believer-keeping word of God. It cannot be frustrated or stopped in accomplishing the reason for which it has been sent. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God spoke. And when God speaks, things happen. When God speaks, angels appear, universes unfold, stars blaze, galaxies whirl, and planets orbit. When God speaks, mountain ranges assemble at attention, thunders, thunder rocks and oceans roll and rivers run, birds pounce, lions run, ants crawl and flowers blossom. And then God, out of the dust of the earth, he formed man and he designed his circulatory system, his nervous system, his respiratory system, his skeletal system, his endocrine system, his muscular structure, his digestive process with such detail that thousands of years later, scientists looking at the intricate nature of our DNA are left with no other logical choice but to acknowledge that behind all of this wonder that the human body is a designer. Yes, there is a designer. And this designer did more than just form the parts. He then breathed into Adam's nostrils and Adam became a living creature because God's word is God's breath. He breathes out and life happens. And one of the evidences of life is the ability to propagate. Life begets life. Life gives birth to life. Dead things do not bring forth life. These pews cannot have more pews. These bricks cannot have more bricks. The word of God is life because God is life. Therefore, when the word of God is faithfully proclaimed, it brings forth life. Dead people come to life. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You who were dead in your trespasses and sins have been made alive by the living eternal word of God. So teachers, you teach the word of God, you are handling the very source of life for your students, dads and moms. When you read the Bible to your kids, you're giving them the very thing that can produce life in them. It's living because it is from the true, eternal, immutable, and infinitely living God. God alone is the author of life. Therefore, his word is alive. It is active. All scripture is breathed out by God. Ezekiel 37 is one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible to me. The prophet Ezekiel is given a vision of a valley of bones. 
Every time I read it, I think of the aftermath of the atrocities of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. You can today go to Cambodia and you can walk in the fields where the evidences of genocide are seen in the, in the long mounds that to this day are punctuated by protruding bones that hauntingly bear testimony to the evil that reigned in that land. These are fields of death. It's hollowed ground. Visitors do not laugh and jest when walking there. The specter of death causes the thoughtful guest to feel as if he's an intruder in an outdoor cathedral. One can only speak in hushed tones. Ezekiel, he's not in a field. He's in a valley. He stands on the ground where great death and devastation took place. And he is surrounded by bones, but they're not even partially covered by dirt. They're all there. And these are the bones of his countrymen. These are those of his own nation who died at the hands of their enemies. And as far as Ezekiel can see, he sees death. And as much as he wants to be quiet, God says, Ezekiel, preach. Preach to the bones. Preach God's Word to the bones. Tell the bones. Hear the Word of the Lord. And Ezekiel learned long ago not to argue with God. And so... Ezekiel does exactly that. And as he does, there's a rattling of the bones as that graveyard is turned into a boot camp. And that's exactly what happens in church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday when you preach the Word of God. Dead people are raised to life to become soldiers in the army of God. That is how powerful God's Word is. When Jesus went to where Lazarus was buried, He didn't bring a defibrillator. He just spoke. And because He is the author of life, His Word has authority. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And had He not said, Lazarus, the whole cemetery would have come back to life. And you and I can go to a cemetery today and we can yell and scream all that we want, but it won't open graves. We can get slick PowerPoint presentations and special lights and fog machines and killer bands. We can get stained glass windows and gothic cathedrals and large pipe organs, but none of those things will bring dead people to life. Only the Word of God can do that. As a pastor, you have to preach. As a fellow pastor, I charge you before God and these witnesses to only preach the only thing that will give your people life. Preach the Word. Preach it from Genesis to Revelation without blinking an eye, knowing that when you preach, something supernatural takes place. 
The sovereign God confronts an individual through the preaching of the word and seizes his soul by the throat. And this living word that grabs people by the heart won't let them go. The word that grips your soul will grip the souls of others and won't let go. This word is sufficient. Unleash the sword because this lion will roar. The seed may lie under the clods till we lie there and then spring up. Our plain and cheering duty is therefore to go forward, to scatter the seed, to believe and wait. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful you have given to us your word. What on earth would we talk about? If we didn't have your word, what could we say with any confidence? If we didn't have your word, what would change people forever if we didn't have your word? We thank you that forever, oh Lord, your word is settled in the heaven. May we not shrink back as we see the day approaching. That give us boldness and confidence in the only thing that gives life, your word. In your sweet name we pray. Amen.